recording. All right. Uh, back in the early 80s, after Tracy and I got married, uh, I owned a utility auditing service. And we audited utility bills and telephone bills. That was before AT&T breakup with the Bell companies. And we uh, contracted primarily with large users of utilities or large users of telephones, manufacturing plants, schools, hospitals, such as that. And actually, we would go in and uh, do a complete audit and secure refunds for them. Um, up to three years, which was the statute of limitations, regardless of how many years they'd been being overcharged. Um, these were not energy studies to sell them equipment or set back thermostat or lighting or something like that. They were an actual audit on their, on their bills. I had personnel here in Lubbock and uh, Dallas and Abilene and in the Austin area. I would often travel to these areas. I would meet with my employees and review their work with them. Uh, one of the things that I did in my spare time, and this will probably surprise you, I would visit cemeteries. I'd read various tombstones. Now, if you ever want to hear a hilarious graveyard story, you need to hear it from Carol Gary because it will put you in stitches. Maybe some night we can get her to share that. She's not here tonight, but there was the occasion when I visited the cemetery where my dad is buried. His marker reads Joseph Stettheimer. Born September the 2nd, 1889. Deceased October the 27th, 1956. Beloved Father. It was an eerie feeling standing there and reading the marker of my father. A man with the same name as I have. I often wondered what it was like for my dad to grow up and go to school in the late 1800s. What it was like to go to work in the early 1900s. I'll never forget one day in Austin after meeting with my employees then and driving down to San Antonio to meet with a manufacturing plant down there. The intersection is appears no different than all the others. You got a Burger King over on one corner, a Roadway Inn over here, a restaurant over here on another one. But you turn northwest and you go under the cast iron sign and you're going to find yourself on an island of history. The name of the sign is Lock Hill Cemetery. I parked my car. The dark clouds indicated there was going to be a sure thunderstorm. And a lonely path invited me to walk through the 200-plus tombstones. There were tall, mature oak trees that arched above me, providing a ceiling for the solemn chambers. Tall grass, still wet from the morning dew, brushed my ankles. The tombstones, 
though weathered and worn and chipped, they were alive with yesterday. Markers that bear the name of Schmidt and Faustman and Grunmeyer and Eckert. Ruth Lacey's buried there. She was born in the days of Napoleon, 1807. Died 100, about 150 years ago in 1877. I stood on the same spot where a mother wept on a cold winter day some eight decades earlier. The tombstone simply read, Baby Boat, born and died, December the 10th, 1910. 18-year-old Harry Ferguson was laid to rest in 1883 under these words, Sleep sweetly, tired young pilgrim. I thought, wow, what wearied him so? I mean, a young man passed away at 18 and remembered as a tired young pilgrim? And then I saw it. It was chiseled in a tombstone on the northern end of the cemetery. The stone marks the destination of the body of Grace Llewellyn Smith. It caught my attention because I had a foster parent by the same name when I was a child. But this was not the same Grace Smith. No date of birth for her is listed. No date of death. Just the names of two husbands and this epitaph. Sleeps, but rests not. Loved, but was loved not. Tried to please, but pleased not. Died as she lived. Alone. Words of futility. I stared at the marker and I wondered. I wondered about Grace Llewellyn Smith. I wondered about her life. I wondered, had she written the words? Or had she just lived them? I wondered if she deserved the pain. I wondered if she was bitter or just beaten. I wonder if she was plain or beautiful. You know, I wonder why some lives are so fruitful and yet so other many lives are futile. As I stood there before her grave, I finally asked audibly, Mrs. Smith, what broke your heart? Raindrops smudged the ink on my big chief tablet as I copied the words. Loved, but was loved not. What happened? Long nights? Empty beds? No response to messages left? No return to letters written? No love exchanged for love given? Tried to please but please not. Boy, I could hear the hatchet of disappointment. How many times do I have to tell you? Chop. You'll never amount to anything. Chop. Chop. Why can't you do anything right? 
I heard those same words on an elevator at our last vacation. A man was right up in the face of his wife in public and said, why can't you do anything right? Died as she lived, alone. How many Grace Llewellyn Smiths are there? How many people will die in the loneliness in which they are living? I think of the homeless that are filling the streets in major cities all across America. Prisons filled with the lonely. They'll never have a visitor. They'll never receive a letter. Or the happy hour hoppers, you know, every Friday and Saturday night from L.A. to New York. Bag lady down in Miami. Street walker in New Orleans. Or maybe a preacher over in Nashville. Any person who doubts whether the world needs them. Whether they're in L.A., Laredo, or Lubbock. Any person who is convinced that nobody cares. Any person who's been given a ring, but never given a heart. They've been given criticism, but never a chance. All given a bed, but never rest. These are the victims of futility. And unless someone intervenes, well, unless something happens, the epitaph of Grace Llewellyn Smith will be theirs. And that's why I want to share another story. It's significant. It's biblical. It's the story of another tombstone. It's the story of a tombstone, though, that doesn't mark the death of a person. It marks the birth. Her eyes squint against the noonday sun. Her shoulders stoop under the weight of the water jug. Her sandaled feet trudge along, stirring up dust along the path. She keeps her eyes down so that she can avoid the stares of others. Who is she? She's a Samaritan. She knows the sting of racism. She's a woman. She's bumped her head on the ceiling of sexism. She's been married to five men. Five different marriages. Five different beds. Five different rejections. Five different trips to divorce court. She knows the sound of slamming doors and hateful words. She knows what it means to love and to receive no love in return. She likely never received a birthday wish, a Mother's Day rose, while her current mate, he won't even give her his name. He only gives her a place to sleep. If there's a Grace Llewellyn Smith in the New Testament, it is this woman. The epitaph of insignificance could have been hers. And it would have been except for an encounter with a stranger. On this particular day, she came to the well at noon. Why didn't she come in the morning? You know, when it was nice and cool, 
like all the other women? Well, maybe she had. Maybe it's just a really hot day and she needed some more water. Or maybe it was the other women that she was avoiding. You know, a walk in the hot sun, small price to pay in order to escape their sharp tongues, their sneers, their smears. Can you hear them? Here she comes. Have you heard? Yeah, she got her a new man. Uh, they say she'll sleep with anyone. Shh! There she is. She came to the well at noon. She expected silence. She expected solitude. Instead, she found one who knew her better than she knew herself. There he was, seated on the ground, legs outstretched, hands folded, resting his back against the well. His eyes are closed. She stopped and she looked at him. She looked around. No one was near. She looked back at him. He was obviously Jewish. What was he doing here? Her eye, his eyes opened and she ducked in embarrassment. And she went quickly about her task. Sensing her discomfort, Jesus asked her for a drink of water. Now, she was too streetwise to think that all he wanted was a drink. I mean, since when does an uptown fellow like you ask a girl like me for water? I mean, she wanted to know what he really had in mind. And her intuition was partially correct. He was interested in more than water. He was interested in her heart. And they talked. Who could remember the last time that a man had spoken to her with respect? He told her about a spring of water that would quench not only the thirst of her throat, but of her soul. And this intrigued her. Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty. Have to keep coming here and draw water. Okay, go. Call your husband. Come back. Her heart must have sunk. Here was a Jew. He didn't care whether she was a Samaritan. Here was a man who didn't look down on her as a woman. Here was the closest thing to gentleness that she had ever seen. And now, he's asking her about that. Anything but that. Maybe she considered lying. Oh, my husband? <laughs> well, you know, he's really busy today. Maybe she wanted to change the subject. Perhaps she wanted to leave. But she stayed. And she told the truth. I have no husband. You know, kindness has a way of inviting honesty. You know the rest of the story. I wish you were hearing it for the first time. If you were, you would be wide-eyed as you waited to see what Jesus would do next. And why is that? Well, because some of us 
have been in the very same situation. If you were like me at that point in my life, you wanted to take off your mask. You wanted to stop pretending. And you wondered what God would do if He just opened up your cobweb-covered door of secret sin. This woman wondered what Jesus would do. She must have wondered if the kindness would cease if she told the truth or if the truth was revealed. Oh, He'll be angry. Oh, He'll leave. He'll think just like all the others, I'm worthless. Look at Jesus' answer. Underline them. You're right. You've had five husbands. And the man you're with, he won't even give you his name. No criticism. No anger. Certainly didn't sit her down and say, well, I'm going to give you a lecture on what a mess you've made out of your life. No, it wasn't perfection that Jesus was looking for. It was honesty. And the woman was amazed. Well, I can see that you're a prophet. Translation, there's something different about you. Uh, Do you mind if I ask you something? And then she asked the question that revealed the gaping hole in her soul. The question she asked is, where is God? Uh, My people say He's over there on the mountain. Your people say He's in Jerusalem. I don't know where He is. I would have given a thousand sunsets to just see the expression on Jesus' face as He heard those words. I mean, did His eyes water? Did He smile? I mean, did He look up into the heavens and wink at the Father? I mean, of all the places to find a hungry heart. Samaria. Of all the Samaritans to be searching for God. A woman. And of all the women to have an insatiable appetite for God. A five-time divorcee. And of all the people to be personally chosen to receive the secret of the ages. An outcast among outcasts. The most insignificant person in the region. It's remarkable. Jesus didn't reveal the secret to King Herod. He didn't request an audience at the Sanhedrin and tell them the news. It wasn't within the colonnades of a Roman court that he announced his identity. No, it was in the shade of a well, in a rejected land, to an ostracized woman. And his eyes must have danced as he whispered the secret, I am the Messiah. You know the only people to have heard those words prior? was three apostles on the Mount of Transfiguration. The most important phrase in John chapter 4 is one that is easily overlooked. Then, leaving her water jar, the woman 
went back to town and she said to the people, come and see a man who's told me everything that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? You know, it's easy to miss the drama of the moment, but look at her eyes, wide with amazement. Listen as she struggles for the words. You, you kidding me? You, you're the Messiah? And watch as she scrambles to her feet. She takes one look back at, 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 at the grinning Nazarene. She turns and she runs right into the burly chest of Simon Peter. You know, Jesus' friends, they'd gone into town to get groceries. And she almost falls, regains her balance, hot foots it towards her hometown. Did you notice what she forgot? She forgot her water pot. She left behind the jug that had caused the sag in her shoulders. She left behind the burden she brought. And suddenly the shame of tattered romances disappeared. And suddenly the insignificance of her life was so swallowed up by the significance of the moment. God is here. I mean, God has come. God cares for me. And that's why she forgot her water jar. That's why she ran to the city. That's why she grabbed the first person and she announced her discovery. I mean, I just talked to a man who knows everything that I ever did. And he still loves me anyway. Well, the disciples, they offered Jesus some food. He refused it. I mean, he was too excited. He'd just done what he does best. He had taken a life that was drifting and he had given it direction. He was exuberant. And look, he announced to his disciples. He points at the woman who's running into the village. Vast fields of human souls, they're ripening all around us. The fields are white into harvest. They'd been to town. They likely had met the same woman on the trail as they're going into town as she's coming out of town to the well. They probably pushed her off the beaten trail. They go into the marketplace to buy food. They never mention the Messiah. Now, for some of us, the story of these two women... You know, they might be touching, but they're distant. And why is that? Well, I can tell you why. Because the women here, you belong. I mean, you're needed and you know it. You're loved beyond words. You've got more friends than you'll ever visit and you've got more tasks than you could ever accomplish. And one thing that will never be chiseled on your tombstone is insignificance be thankful but there's scores of others it will be different they pause at the epitaph because it is theirs they see the face of grace llewellyn smith when they look in the mirror they know why the samaritan woman was avoiding people they do the same. 
I mean, you likely, you don't know what it's like to sit alone out of shame, embarrassment, or rejection in a restaurant, at a movie, or even at church. But they do. They wonder what it'd be like just to have one person who would friend them, someone who would speak to them at the grocery store or even at church. They once were in love, but now they wonder whether or not it'd be ever worth the pain to do it again. They come home to an empty house. They sit alone and when it gets dark, they pull down the sheets and they go to sleep in an empty bed and they toss and they turn and they wonder where God is. I have a daughter named Charity. She teaches underprivileged children in the Louisville School District. She's loved beyond words. This past year, she was nominated as Teacher of the Year. Her class is a group of nine-year-olds. And let me tell you, those kids are live wires. This past year, they gathered all together uh, down in the lunchroom with all the other kids there in the grade school or middle school to have lunch. They get on the speakerphone, they call me and they sing Happy Birthday. And that's just one of the happy moments that they've shared. They love life and they're not afraid of God. There's one exception, however. A timid girl. I'll just refer to her as Jenny. Her difficult home life has left her afraid and insecure. Jenny sat in class and she never said a word. Never. The others talked, sang, giggled, and laughed. Jenny was silent, always present, always listening, always speechless. Until the day, Charity, who is adopted by me, she went outside the curriculum and she shared a message on heaven. And Charity talked about seeing God. She talked about tearless eyes and deathless lives. Jenny was fascinated. She wouldn't release Charity from her stare. She listened with hunger. She raised her hand. Mrs. Barth, Charity was stunned. Jenny had never asked a question. Yes, Jenny. Mrs. Barth, is heaven for girls like me? Again, I'd give a thousand sunsets to have seen Jesus' face as this tiny prayer reached the throne. And that's what it was. A prayer is heaven for girls like me. An earnest prayer that a good God in heaven would remember a forgotten soul on earth. A prayer that God's grace would seep into the cracks and cover one that even the church had let slip through. A prayer to take a life that no one else could use and use it as only one could. It wasn't a prayer from the pulpit. It was a prayer from a bed in a convalescent home. It wasn't a prayer 
prayed confidently by some black-robed seminarian. But it was a prayer whispered fearfully by a recovering drug addict. A prayer to do what God does best. Just take the common and make it spectacular. To once again take the rod and part the sea. To take a pebble and kill a Goliath. To take water and make sparkling wine. To take a peasant boy's lunch and feed a multitude. To take mud and restore sight. To take three spikes and a wooden beam and make them the hope of humanity. To take a rejected insignificant woman and make her a missionary. We've talked about two graves. The first was a lonely one in Lock Hill Cemetery. The grave of Grace Llewellyn Smith. She knew not love. She knew not gratification. She knew only the pain of the chisel as it carved the appetite, appetite into her life and engraved it in marble. Sleeps, but rests not. Loved, but was loved not. Tried to please, but pleased not. Died as she lived, alone. That, however, was not the only grave in our lesson. The second is near a water well. And the tombstone? Well, it was a water jug. A forgotten water jug. It had no words, but it has great significance. For in Samaria, that forgotten water jug is the burial place of insignificance. Have you ever wept a river? Have you ever lost hope and just forsaken hope? Have you ever laid in bed wondering if morning will bring the night to an end? That was Mary Magdalene's dilemma. Before she knew Jesus, she had seven demons. She was a prisoner of seven afflictions. You ever thought what that list might include? Depression? Loneliness? Shame? Fear? Maybe she was a recluse. Well, maybe she was a prostitute. Maybe she'd been abused. Maybe she was abandoned. Or it could have been that Mary Magdalene was just completely consumed with troubles like the other two women in our story. But Jesus spoke and the demons, the demons fled. Banished, evicted, and Mary Magdalene can now smile again. There's a poem that reads, The Time Is Now. I read these words. If you're ever going to love me, love me now, while I can know the sweet and tender feelings from which true affection flows. Love me while I'm living. Don't wait until I'm gone and then have it chiseled in marble, sweet words on ice-cold stone. If you wait until I'm sleeping, I won't hear them then. Let me know while I'm living so I can treasure it. Two tombstones. The story I've shared with you tonight. Let's pray.
Father, there's been days when I wanted to put a bag over my head. I wanted to hide. Some of us know the feeling of being feeling worthless, of insignificance. We've been reminded by the overwhelming feeling somehow that we're just not good enough. It seems that we were either too little or too much, but never enough. So Lord Jesus, whether it be someone in this room, whether it be one of our children or grandchildren, whatever the case may be, a loved one, those with a desperate heart, we speak up for them tonight. Those who are struggling with doubt, with fear, with insecurity and insignificance, they need Your arms to hold them. I pray that You will hear the prayer. That they'll cling to Your Word that tells us to trust in You and to pour out our heart. In Your name and by Your blood, Lord Jesus, we stand against the feelings of insignificance and worthlessness, of rejection. Those feelings that have stolen Your joy and Your peace in our lives. We accept Your Word that says that we are precious and honored in Your sight and that You love us. You call me the chosen one in whom You delight. I claim and I receive these words knowing they have the power to transform my very life and the life of those whom we lift up tonight. In Jesus' powerful name, Amen.